I am really, really blessed to be here with you this morning. I'd like to just first kind of begin by asking for prayer, both right now and as we go on. Um, I think it, it makes a difference in, in our ability to be able to perceive God's truth for our lives today from his word. So as we begin, just bow your heads with me and let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are your humble children, um, asking for your presence right now, asking for your blessing, asking for the gift of your Holy Spirit in our lives, praying that you would speak to us today, that you would help us to realize our ever-present need of you, and that you would help us to, to find healing in your word um, and strength, Father, to follow you. In your son's name, amen. So today I, I'd like to first begin by asking you to think about a man named Nicodemus. He's a man that I, I find a lot that I can relate to in his life. He is somebody who, by all appearances, you know, does very well for himself, has a good spiritual life, is a spiritual leader in his community, and he's admired. And yet, we all know the story, if you want to turn there briefly, John chapter 3. It's one of my favorite parts of scripture, first seven chapters of John. Um, but John chapter 3, we find that Nicodemus goes after Jesus, looks for him in the cover of darkness, right? And he has a very specific request. Nicodemus is, is lacking something in his life. Nicodemus is searching for something in his life. And he, by all accounts, seems to think that in Jesus, he is going to find that one thing that he's missing. And we all wonder, you know, what is it that Nicodemus could be missing. You know, he's spiritual. He's looked up to. You know, he has the resources in his life. Not only is he, you know, successful by, by worldly standards, but he's successful by spiritual standards as, you know, as far as everyone else can tell. And yet, he is in such a need of something that he is willing to risk being seen, risk, you know, things being said about him, to go in the cover of darkness and seek after this controversial rabbi that is teaching these things in the community. And we all know what happens in, in, in John chapter 3, but he basically approaches Jesus and says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. So Nicodemus starts off by pointing out to Jesus that, hey, Jesus, there's something about your life that is accomplishing and doing things that none of us have ever seen before, right? In other words, in, in a way, Nicodemus is telling Jesus, there's stuff happening around you, and I want to know what's the reason behind that. I want that very same power in my life. And it seems to me that just by, by the fact that Nicodemus is here and by the answer that Jesus is giving Nicodemus, Nicodemus is living a life that is not satisfying to Nicodemus. He's not satisfied with his spiritual life, um, or maybe even with the other things in his life. And even though he has so much going for him, he sees in Jesus something that he very much desires. So we know, we know Jesus' reply. He kind of goes off on this reply that just seems to be completely disconnected from the question that Nicodemus originally asked. And if we go to John chapter 3, you know, verse 3 says, Jesus replies to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And in verse, verse 4, Nicodemus is, is trying to understand, so he rephrases his question, basically. And in verse 5, Jesus answers again, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Ni Jesus is just repeating himself, using different words, and it seems like Nicodemus is just not understanding what is it about Jesus' life, what is it about his ministry that is giving him so much purpose? Because Nicodemus feels like that is the thing that he is missing in his own life. So Jesus doesn't stop there, so he's trying to help Nicodemus understand, verse 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And then verse 7, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So again, Jesus kind of goes on with his theme, trying to bring it home, but I'm, I'm assuming that Nicodemus isn't quite getting it. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from 
and more it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So now Jesus is kind of giving a hint and saying that maybe the power that is, is, is behind my work is something that from human perspective, from a human eye, it's hard to understand. It's hard to explain, right? And so Nicodemus, again, in verse 9, answered, you know, asked a question again. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? He's still questioning. He's still in a quandary. He does not understand what Jesus is saying. And then verse 10, Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And do you not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we, what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. So this is kind of a little rebuke to Nicodemus from Jesus. And it's kind of speaking to the fact that Into truth, if our eyes are not empowered by the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit isn't in our lives, we could have truth right in front of us, and we could be missing what God is trying to tell us. Verse twelve: If you, if I have, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So here's an issue where Jesus is saying, you know, even if I told you point blank, you know, completely transparent, what it is that makes my ministry change things and do things, you probably wouldn't believe. And so kind of the, the operative concept here is this issue of belief in the life of Nicodemus. But the point I'm trying to get to is verse 13 and 14. And that's what, I'm, what I want to be able to jump off and, and, and do our study today. Verse 12 and 13 says, sorry, uh, 13 and 14, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And then verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Verse 15, That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And we know, we know these verses, because verse 16 is right next, right, right in front of that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so it is so easy to forget that one of the most iconic, all-encompassing verses of the gospel, John chapter 3, verse 16, has as its foundation a question from a person whose spiritual life was unfulfilling to him. Nicodemus was an unfulfilled follower of truth. And in response to that, Jesus' answer is, number one, he points him, once he gets to this metaphor, like first Jesus starts off with the metaphors of you have to be born again. Then he brings in the concept of there needs to be belief. But when he actually gets to the meat of the answer to Nicodemus, he brings up two, two different ways of, of showing this. The first one is he points to what instance in the Old Testament? What instance does he point to? You guys know I like the quiz. Serpent being raised in the wilderness, right? So he points to that instance. And I actually would like us to go there really quickly. Numbers 21, verse 4. Numbers 21, verse 4. This is actually a story that I hadn't read in a long time. And it's really interesting to me. Numbers 21, verse 4. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor, or by the way of the Red Sea, to the ground of the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God, against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, no water, and our souls loathes, in this, loathes this worthless bread. So think about what's happening here. The people of Israel are in the desert. Are they satisfied with the food they're getting? No. Are they satisfied with the conditions of the land that they're in? No. So they come to Jesus and they complain. Think about the parallels. Here's a people that are unsatisfied with the direction that God has been guiding them. And so they come to God, but they have a very different approach than Nicodemus. What is their approach? They demand. They said, God, this is what we want. And they, exactly, they make out this huge complaint. What is God's response? It's, it's, a, it's a very dramatic response, I would say. Um, verse 6, so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, 
and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Verse 7, Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And then the Lord said to Moses, this is, this is key right here, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. So, well, I mean, we could do a whole sermon on the concepts that are taught um, on this story. But I, right now, I just want to highlight the fact that when Jesus is replying to Nicodemus, he says, what you need in your life is the kind of treatment or the kind of attitude that an Israelite person that had just been bitten by a serpent who had just previously been repentant for the complaining that they had done before God is he's now repentant. He's in facing death itself. That look that that person gave to that serpent on the, on the, on the, on the pole that was placed in the middle of the camp, that look is what Nicodemus is missing. So, you know, very interesting. And then immediately after that, Jesus has this way of summarizing things so beautifully when he says in John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, you know, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. So, whosoever would what? Whosoever would believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And so we see kind of this theme coming up, you know, where, and we know this, we've talked about this before, but Jesus is, the thing that Jesus is trying to place in Nicodemus' mind is the fact that there is this, this idea of belief that is lacking in his life. You know, if you can have all the head knowledge, you can have all even the, the acts of a godly life, but if the, head, if, if the belief is not there, a belief that not only just says, I know this to be true, but a belief that says, I depend on this for my very existence to be true. That difference, that, that distinction in belief is what Nicodemus was missing in his life. Now, yes? Right. Exactly. And that, that's, exact, that's exactly the point. Nicodemus was missing a heart belief in Jesus, a heart belief in truth. There was something lacking in his life. Now, I've gone through all this right now. Just, be, just to, I mean, this is all something that is very obvious to us. It's something that, that the, I don't need to prove to you to know that one of the key elements of a Christian life is a wholehearted belief in the words of Jesus, a wholehearted belief that Jesus is able to save, that Jesus is enough for my salvation, that he has my life. And, you know, when we think of, of, of verses like John chapter 3, verse 16, we think of how simple and yet how profound they are. We think of how you know, the, the, the gospel really at its very core is just this very simple idea that, you know, that we walk through what the Israelites went through, where first of all, there's sin in us. We complain. We, we malign God's name. He, sin comes, bites us. We have the effects of sin. We face certain death. And then a solution is provided up on high, a bronze serpent and what, that represents Jesus coming down to earth, becoming sin itself, so that by him dying, we could have the hope of an eternal life. And so when, we, when we're faced with that reality, we look to the serpent, and in our hearts, we believe that that is the only solution to the sin problem. And when that belief is there, that righteousness gets imputed to us and we become righteous in him. That, that whole concept is, is the gospel packaged you know, into a very small, you know, palatable couple of verses. It's a beautiful thing. It's something that you know, we'll spend all of eternity studying and trying to understand and trying to, to really marvel at. But the question comes down to this, and this is kind of what I want to spend our, the rest of our time talking about. We all know that the answer to an unfulfilling spiritual life is lack of belief. At the same time, though, we know from, for a fact that us human beings, we are not binary creatures. And what I mean by that is we are not the kind of, we're not the kind of people that are always believing or not believing at all. Do you see what I'm trying to say? We've all had moments where 
We've exercised faith in God. We've exercised true belief. We've all had those moments. I, because I, I don't think we would be here if there hasn't been a moment in our life where we had to put ourselves in the line for, for Jesus and to trust him with our belief, with our salvation, with everything that we are. But yet I am sure that all of us, even recently, have, ha- have had moments where that belief has not been there. And when I mean belief, I don't mean knowing things to be true. I mean that we ha- we've had moments in our lives where our, we don't depend on Jesus for salvation. We don't depend on Jesus for victory over the things around us. We don't depend on him to direct our lives and our futures. We all have these moments where we go from these mountaintop experiences of belief where we trust him with everything, and then we go down to these valley experiences where it seems like Jesus has led us astray, or he has led us to a wrong place, and then our belief falters. So when I say that the answer to a fulfilling Christian walk is belief, the realist in me says, okay, I want that belief. I've, I've experienced moments of that belief, but why is it that that belief wavers so much? Why is it that that belief has different levels of, 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 of meaningfulness in my life and in my experience? And what can I do to make my belief a more permanent, more present part of my life? Is that a question that you've had in your life? Then, no, I've, 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 I've had it in mine for, for a while. And this is where the verse that I, I, I asked to be read for scripture reading comes into play. And the title of our message today is Living on the Altar. Living on the Altar. And this verse is interesting. If you would go there with me, um, Psalms chapter 118, verse 27. Psalm 118, verse 27, I'm reading from the King James Version. It says, God is the Lord, which hath showed us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords, even unto the horns of the altar. Now, if, if we had a little bit more time, I would want to, to be able to dissect a little bit more kind of the context of this verse, what is going on, uh, and, and what it means. This is a, a very powerful psalm, one that is, is bringing in a lot of concepts of, of, of intercession, of salvation, of redemption, and what, what goes on in the gospel. But this is kind of a very critical moment towards the end of this, of this psalm where the psalmist is, psalmist is almost reflecting on the fact that he has been given so much. You know, and just in this verse, it says that the Lord has showed us light. Do you feel like God has given you light in your life? Amen. God has given each and every one of us different degrees, different categories, types of light, and we've experienced those in our lives. And I almost feel like when, when the psalmist is writing these words, he's, he's thinking of, how do I make this light more permanent? How do I make this light last? And so this interesting concept of binding the sacrifice with cords, even unto the horns of the al- altar. So paint a, pe- a mental picture with me. If you think of the Old Testament sanctuary, right? We know the divisions um, in the different compartments of the sanctuary. We know that in the outer court, what is the first uh, furniture or article of furniture that we run into when we go through the gates? The altar, right? The altar of sacrifice. And if you read the description where God gives the blueprint for how that altar should be made, we know that the altar had what on each corner? It had horns, right? And it had power too. Oh, the horns are power. There we go. Thank you. And so imagine this. You know, sacrifices are brought. And once the life of the lamb is given for the sins of the family and of Israel, that sacrifice is placed upon the altar. And, you know, I I don't know for a fact if this was the case or not, but you could imagine how maybe if you had to set things, you know, for them not to move, you could potentially bind things down. But to me, this idea of, of tying things down is a little unusual, though. You know, why, why would you need to tie something to the altar? It just, initially, to me, it didn't make a lot of sense. And I found this, this, this uh, f- short paragraph in first book, First Testimonies, page 169 by Ellen White, where she uses this metaphor to explain kind of the Christian experience, and, and it helps kind of begin answering the question that we've placed for our message this morning, which is how do we make this belief a permanent part of our Christian experience? And she says, First Testimonies 169, 
And you might want to write this down. This is a verse that I would put on my fridge, or a, a paragraph that I would put on my fridge. It says, lay all upon the altar, a living, consuming sacrifice. Bind it, bind it with cords. If you cannot keep it there, give yourselves to prayer. Live at the altar. Strengthen your purposes by the promises of God. And I think this, this merits one more reading. But before we do that, think of what's happening here. She is using this metaphor of a sacrifice of blessings, a sacrifice of blessings being placed on the altar. And it says, she says, if you cannot keep it there, how, what, what should you do? You should bind it with cords. And what, is the, what do the cords symbolize according to her? You said it. Prayer, right? So I'm going to read it one more time, and I want you to see this metaphor in action. Lay all upon the altar a living, consuming sacrifice. Bind it with cords if you cannot keep it there. Give yourselves to prayer. Live at the altar. Strengthen your purposes by the promises of God. There's, there's, there's so much there, but in essence... This, this passage kind of helps make a bridge in my mind to realize that prayer is the solution to the problem of an inconsistent belief. Prayer is a solution to the problem of an inconsistent belief. E.M. Bounds is one of my favorite um, Christian authors. He wrote extensively on prayer. So I'm going to be quoting him a number of times. But one of the things that he writes is, is this. Prayer and faith work together, act and react one upon the other. When faith ceases to pray, it ceases to live. In other words, you cannot have faith without prayer. Prayer strengthens faith. Prayer makes faith possible. Prayer makes faith grow. And so when we wonder, how is it that sometimes we cannot have faith or belief in the promises of God? Why is it that some, sometimes I can't trust my life to Jesus in his will. Could it be that maybe there's some work to do in the praying, uh, the praying in my life? So prayer is this thing that makes things happen in people's life. That's what we're told, right? That's what we're, we're, we're counseled ever since, you know, you start hearing about prayer um, when you meet God. We know that if there's no prayer, there are no results. There's no growth in the spiritual life. We know that prayer is God's method of carrying out his purposes upon earth. It's an, it's an agent of change. Ellen G. White says in Ministry of Healing, page 345, prayer and faith will do what no power on earth can accomplish. Amen. Amen. And this is something that we know, right? When we, we have moments of prayer on church, we have moments of prayer in our personal lives. James chapter 5 Verse 16, again, think, thinking about the power of prayer, James chapter 5, verse 16 says, The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and wonderful results. That's the New Living Translation. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and wonderful results. How many of you have seen the power of prayer in your life? Amen. I know we all have. And then John Wesley, the great evangelist, you know, he has this famous saying in regards to prayer where he says, God will do nothing but an answer to prayer. And then I want to read one more quote. This is just to kind of make this the, the, the bridge to what we're talking about. E.M. Bounds, again, this, this uh, theologian that wrote about prayer, he says, God has of his own, own motion placed himself under the law of prayer and has obligated himself to answer the prayers of men. He has ordained prayer as a means whereby he will do things through men as they pray, which he would otherwise not do. If prayer puts God to work on earth, then by the same token, prayerlessness rules God out of the world's affairs and prevents him from working. So in other words, God has made prayer this, this tool by which he has made himself available to you and I, simple human you know, beings. And it's, it's really an amazing thing. And then the last verse that I want to read in regards to this is Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 3. Jeremiah 33, verse 3 says, Call to me, and I will answer you, and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. And so when it comes to the question, okay, we know that prayer 
we know that prayer um, works. And there's, there's so much more that um, we could read. I think I'm going to skip a section. Um, but, you know, we, I'm just going to name you examples of, of instances where God invites us to pray. For example, Luke chapter 18, verse 1. If you want to look at that later, we have this, a really interesting story where Jesus describes the experience that you and I have when we approach God as a widow approaching a judge and the judge denying the widow and she being persistent, persistent, persistent. And the judge eventually saying, hey, I have no choice but to give her what she wants, right? And we have verses like 1 Thessalonians 5.17 calling us to pray without ceasing. The Great Controversy, page 525, says it is a part of God's plan to grant us, in answer to the prayer of faith, that which he would not bestow had we not asked. So we cannot receive blessings from heaven if we are not praying and asking for blessings from heaven. We know this, right? But the, 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 the thing that I want to spend a little bit of more time with is thinking uh, about what, what prayer is for us. And the reason I think this is important is because if you're like me, let's say, let's say that you, you might fit some different categories. You might be somebody who grew up in a Christian house and you were taught to pray, right? And you, had, you were taught to pray before going to bed and pray before having your meals. Uh, maybe you met God later in life, but you've been you know, attending church and having a spiritual walk for a long time. And if, you're any, 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 if you meet any of those criteria, maybe even if, if you don't, you might realize that prayer is one of those things that very, very easily it can become a ritual. It can become a thing that you do in order to fulfill a requirement. Think about this for yourself. Think of how many times you finished a prayer, whether it be a public prayer, whether it be a personal prayer, and five seconds later, you don't remember what you said. Think about that. It's happened to me. Think about what you say before going to bed, and you're a little bit sleepy, and you're still praying. You're going for it. But you realize that what you're saying is the very same things you've been saying for the last 10 years. And the phrases that you use are the phrases that you've been saying, you know, for the last how many, you know, so much time, right? Think about how easy it is for prayer to be this thing where you sit down and you have this little box of phrases that you use depending on your need. If you need God to step in for you, you use this phrase. And if you need God to help you with that, you use this phrase. And if you want to thank God, you use that one, you know? And I'm, I'm saying this because this, is, this has been my experience. You know, as somebody who grew up in a Christian house, prayer is a part of everything you do. It becomes a habit. It becomes this thing that just, you, you can almost do it mindlessly. You don't have to put a lot of thought into it. And when I think about it, and I wonder, why is it that there's wavering in my belief, in my faith in God, moments where maybe I don't naturally feel like trusting God with my life, why is it that maybe there are moments in which I don't feel like God answers my prayer? Could it be that maybe we're not actually really just praying, but making ourselves feel better by thinking that we are? Let's go to Psalms chapter 73. Psalms chapter 73, verse 28. Psalms chapter 73, verse 70, uh, 28. Yes, 73, let me make sure it's the right one. Verse 28, yes. Last verse of Psalm 73. And I'm going to give you guys a, a, a thought here. Um, the end of Psalms are usually really interesting because they tend to be kind of like the last summarizing statement of the theme of a psalm. So sometimes, if you could try this, read the last verse of a psalm and then start from the beginning and see how it fit, fits. It's kind of an interesting exercise. So Psalm 73, verse 28, it says, But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord, that I may declare all thy works. 
I want to hone in on this short phrase, it is good for me to draw near to God. Why? I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. This is, this is a psalmist saying, I have trust God, right, with my life. I trust him daily. Therefore, what? It is good for me to draw near to God. What does that mean? It is good for me to draw near to God. There should be a blessing to be found in time of prayer. So what is pray, prayer? What, what, what does it do? Ian Bounds, that guy I've been telling you guys about, he summarizes it this way. Prayer is the outstretched arms of the child for the father's help. Prayer is not, and this is my words, this prayer is not you trying to present your best self to God. Prayer is not for you to polish yourself and present yourself to God. But rather, it is the moment where, like this paragraph says, you as a child with outstretched arms reaches for the help of your father. Think about what Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16 says. This is a key passage, key passage in developing an idea of what God's relationship is with you and me in the context of the plan of salvation. Hebrews chapter 4, 15 and 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. I'm going to read that one more time. We do not have a high priest. Who's our high priest? Jesus Christ. Who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. What are our weaknesses? The things that we don't tell people. The things that we are embarrassed of. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come how, if you remember? Boldly. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's so much to talk about in this verse. Number one, last word. What is the context that should drive a seeking of Jesus in prayer. What, is the, what are the circumstances that should lead you to prayer? The last, last word, at least in my version, is time of need. Okay? A lot of us, we tell ourselves, oh, like, you know, I don't, you know there's a saying that says, you know, like, you know, like don't, don't, don't just tell Jesus, like, everything that's wrong, you know? Um, but I do believe, actually, that, there, is, there should be a drive to make you seek after Jesus. And according to this passage, is a time of need should be the reason why we're able to find mercy and grace for that moment. And it is because of our high priest who is able to sympathize with you and I, we're able to come before the throne, how? Boldly. So I want you guys, at least for myself, I want, I want to be able to know that prayer is a tool that is available for your good. It is not something that you do simply to make Jesus happy. It is a tool that he has given you. It is a gift from Jesus to you for times of need, for finding grace and help, for you to be able to come boldly. He made it available. His sacrifice on the cross makes prayer a possibility. And we find this in Hebrews chapter um, 4, verses 15 to 16. And it is because the reason that is possible, like I said, we can think of Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So what does that mean to me, practically, when it comes to prayer? Prayer is not the time in which I go to Jesus and I try my very best to use my best words or I try to paint myself in the best picture, or I try to excuse the, the mistakes that I have made, or I try to you know, present my best side. Prayer is the moment in which the sin in my life, the problems in my life, the struggles in my life drive me to come before Jesus, to be my complete and whole and true self, and bear before him my need of grace and help in time of need. There is a passage here that, like no other, to me at least, illustrates what it is that prayer, what it is that prayer should be in my life. 
And I'm going to give you the quote later. It's a little bit of a longer passage, so please pay close attention with me. And as we're doing this, I want you to think of what prayer is for you. It says, tell God all that is in your heart as one unloads one's heart, one, one's heart, its pleasures and its pains to a dear friend. Tell him your troubles that he may comfort you. Tell him your joys that he may sober them. Tell him your longings that he may purify them. Tell him your dislikes that he may help you to conquer them. Talk to him of your temptations that he may shield you from them. Show him the wounds of your heart that he may heal them. Lay bare your indifference to good, your depraved tastes of evil, your instability. Tell him how self-love makes you unjust to others, how vanity tempts you to be insincere, how pride disguises you to yourself and others. If you thus pour out all your weaknesses, needs, troubles, there will be no lack of what to say. You will never exhaust a subject. It is continually being renewed. People who have no secrets from each other never want for subject of conversation. They do not weigh their words, for there is nothing to be held back. Neither do they seek for something to say. They talk out of the abundance of the heart without consideration. They say just what they think. Blessed are they who attain to such familiar, unreserved intercourse with God. I want you to think about these words, because at least for myself, I know that for, for, for much of my life, this has not been a picture of what my prayer life was like. And, th and I think about the, all the moments in which, you know, after a couple minutes, I run, run out of things to say, you know? And I, but and yet, at the very same time, I think of those very moments where the, the moments where my need of prayer was the highest. And what was keeping me back from experiencing prayer and its true power from experiencing Jesus and his power in my life was the fact that I was trying to keep, you know, this, this mask before him when the fact is he knows you better than you know yourself. So why not come to Jesus with everything that burdens your heart? Why boldly, exactly, why not tell him what it is, that, what it is about you that you want help with? What it, is that, what it is about you that you are sorry for the way it makes him feel, what it is about you that you want to work on, why not be honest with a person, with a, the, the, the divine person that knows us better than we could ever know ourselves. That is one part of what prayer is. It is that bearing of our soul before Jesus. And so at least practically for me, it means that if I'm going to come to him, it is going to, number one, be out of a recognition of my need for him. It is not just going to be because I need to do it before going to bed. It is not just because I need to do it before praying for my meal. Those are all beautiful opportunities to pray, but only pray when it comes as a result of a direct need that you have for Jesus' intervention in your life. What does that mean? If you're going to pray for food, please do it, but do it out of a sincere desire to thank him for the sacrifice that he made for you that makes that meal possible. There's passages in Ellen G. White where she talks about how every prayer for a meal should be as if we are partaking of the Lord's Supper. Because when we eat food, it is food that he has provided. And we can think of the fact that he gave his own body for us, for you and I, to have eternal life. So what an opportunity there, right? Now, Prayer is not just, there's, there's multiple purposes to prayer. So the first thing I said was, it is one of the purposes, one of the first purposes of prayer is to t be able to tell God exactly what is on your heart. To be able to have a conversation as a father would with a child. To be able to be honest, completely transparent with him. But there is a secondary purpose to that. Prayer should also have the role of helping you or allowing you to be able to feel as Jesus feels, and to be able to sympathize with what he sympathizes with. And the way that is done is when Jesus' thoughts become your thoughts. And that is one of the things the prayer can do. And I want you to go with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. We're, al we're getting to the, to almost to the end. Another eight minutes. <laughs> okay, Matthew chapter 14. 
verses 32 to 42. This is a, a, one of the most emotional moments in Scripture, one of the most heavy moments in Scripture, where Jesus is in Gethsemane. And because we know the story, I'm just going to tell it to you. Jesus comes with his most trusted followers, his disciples. This is a moment in which Jesus is about to bear the weight of the world's sins on his shoulder. So imagine the emotional turmoil that he's going through. And so when he, when he leaves his disciples you know, by this tree, and so he goes off to pray, what is his one request of the disciples? Well, before, at this moment, Jesus asks his disciples, please watch and pray with me, right? And I've always wondered, why is it that Jesus asks the disciples, watch and pray, if the disciples are not, are not the ones bearing the weight of the world's sins on their shoulders, right? He needed support. He needed their prayers, right? And so Jesus knew, think of, I mean, this, this, this moment is so sad in a way because he goes on. There's so much suffering. He comes back three times, finding them sleeping. And think of the heartbreak that that would have added to what he was already feeling, that his very own disciples weren't willing to sympathize with what he was feeling, that weren't willing to take upon themselves the thoughts and the hurt that he had. And so at the very end, it's not until you know, he's about to be taken captive that he says, you know, let, me, let me go ahead and find it. Um, Mark chapter 14. This moment just really makes, makes you hurt for him. Mark chapter 14, um, around, around verse 42. See, yeah, 41. Then he came to them the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. In verse 38, it says his request, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so prayer, not only is it a moment where you share your true self with God, where you tell him you know, everything, everything in your heart, but it is also a moment where you listen and when you allow your mind to feel what God feels. And this is something that most of us don't get to in our prayers. I know for myself, it's something that I rarely get to. We, you know, if, if we try, we're, we're pretty good at, at unburdening our souls if, if we try, if we give it a shot, right? We're pretty good at telling God, you know, what's wrong with us, what our needs are. And that's, that we need to do this. We need to do this more, right? We, we know that. But usually after that's done, we say, okay, goodbye. And we, we go on with our time. We go on with our day. But there's also the moment in which we should try our very best to feel what God feels. And this can happen multiple ways. One of the ways it can happen is, one of the ways it can happen is, first of all, by, by once we unburden ourselves to God, by spending a little bit of time thinking about what God feels about those things in our life. You know, what, what would God feel about, you know, my distrust of him in this area or my lack of faith in that area? And in so doing, his thoughts become our thoughts and they actually serve as, as strength to be able to overcome some of those things. But even more than that, spending time to actually meditating on, on what God's will is for your life, on what God's thoughts are, on the things happening around you. I believe that in those moments, if you allow God, he will put in your mind thoughts that will help you reflect his feelings, sympathize with what he sympathizes with. You know, Jesus, God, they, they, they hurt for the hurt of the world. They hurt for the things that are occurring, for the people that are suffering. And a lot of times we go through life not allowing ourselves to feel those things. And I think that a moment of prayer should be dedicated to allowing ourselves to feel the hurt of the suffering that takes place in this world. And then lastly, my last point of the purpose of prayer is that prayer should also be a moment in which we stand between God and humanity. There's a role for intercession in prayer. Um, and um, we can think of Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30. And I sought for a man among them 
that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. So there is a role for you to stand before God and intercede for your friends, for your family, for the world around you. We know from the beginning of our talk that we've been having today that God has made prayer a tool by which he allows himself to work for the world. And so a moment of time should also be spent in our prayers to intercede deeply for the things that we care about, for the things that we know God would care about, to allow him to work and intercede in the lives of others. So to summarize, there's a lot to summarize, but let me just say like the three, the three roles of prayer in our lives. Number one, make prayer a moment in which you show Jesus, you show God your honest, true self. And for myself, what that is going to mean this week is I am going to work on when I approach Jesus in prayer, I'm going to try to put aside my box of phrases and prayers that I have. And I'm going to start by being honest with him about what I know is wrong in my life for that day, what I know his goals are for my life, for what I know he desires for my life, and to be honest with what our wants are, our frustrations, our, our jealousies, our, the things that bother us, put them all on the table. The next step is going to be we're going to spend time allowing ourselves to feel what God feels. Think about moments of Jesus' life in Gethsemane, moments of Jesus' life sacrificing his life on the cross for us. And then think about how his reaction would be to things in our life, things in the life people around us, things going on in the world, and try to feel what he feels and allow that feeling to motivate you to action, to do something. And that leads us to intercession. You know, plead with God because he wants to be pleaded with. He wants to be allowed to work for others. And so spend that moment of time praying for the, the, the needs of those around us. Now, I'm going to say this. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of people kind of Maybe, you know, they, they say like, oh, yeah, you know, prayer has to be this organic thing. It has to be this natural thing. And I, I totally agree with that. We just finished saying how the, it should be this heartfelt thing. But we, you and I, as humans, we are creatures of habit. We are creatures of habit. So we, on the one side, we need our prayers to be real. We need our prayers to be from the heart and honest. At the same time, if we do not discipline ourselves, those prayers won't happen. And so there is a need about for being disciplined on about or having a disciplined prayer life. How does that look for you? I know that for some people, it, it actually might mean doing a prayer journal. You know, it's a, it's, that's a really good way to, to kind of force yourself to put down into pen some, like, let's, you know, the, maybe, maybe the summary of those things that you shared with God, the summary of the things that you pleaded with him and then kind of like at the end maybe a conclusion of, of how you were changed by this experience and as a result of that prayer how is your day going to be different and that kind of holds you accountable to results from from praying to God you know that is one way for some people it might mean actually making a schedule putting an alarm on your phone that reminds you I know every day I'm going to choose this moment of time honestly it is so much better to have like, wh whatever it is for your lifestyle, choose a time. It is so much better to have a quality moment of prayer than to have constant thoughts of, or, or, or prayers throughout the day that are thoughtless. You know, I, I would much rather us having one moment of good, genuine, sincere prayer than all these moments where we just mumble things and say things that, you know, we have in our heads. So if for you that means choosing in your schedule a moment in time where you know that you can be alone, where you won't be distracted. You know, for most people, that, can, that is usually early in the morning because that's when the, the, the cares of the world are, are, are the, you know, maybe more diminished, right? Or maybe, like, the family is not up or something, right? That, that could help. But for some people, it might mean evening. And, and you need to be honest with yourself about when is the best time for me to be completely alone, undistracted, to be able to pour out my heart to God. So schedule it if you need to. And then the other thing is, like, like we know, prayer doesn't have to be this formal event. When you're driving to work, 
when you're in work, when you're you know, doing your things, and, and things come to your mind, share with him. You know, if frustrations come to mind, share with him those frustrations. Ask for help. Prayer can be this dynamic conversation, like we said, between a father and a child that can occur at any time you want. You don't have to pick up the phone. You don't have to get on your knees. You can share as your day goes along your frustrations, your needs. And even maybe there's some things that just, you know, you, you can say, hey, God, this is something that is really, really bothering you, me. I need your help with this. And, and, and I... That's right. That's right. You can, you can say that to God and be like, hey, you know, right now I, I really can't talk about everything that's going on, but you know my heart. Tonight I'm going to spend some extra time like telling you exactly like what's going on in my life right now. But, you know, make, make, make that a relationship. And I know for myself this week um, that it's going to be kind of a commitment that I'm going to be making. And I'm going to be asking you guys, if you are willing to allow this week to be a time in which our prayer life is going to be different, and it's going to be recharged, be, powered by the fact that we need him so badly, I think that more than ever, this, call, this time calls for prayerful people. And we know from a fact that from the beginning, if we want our faith, our belief to be unwavering, we need to be able to give ourselves as a sacrifice to Jesus and allow prayer to be those cords that tie us down to him on a daily basis. Let's go ahead and kneel for prayer. Family Father, um, right now, I, I, I feel like I've, I've been spoken to by your word, um, and I, I pray that all of us here have realized um, Maybe ways in which our prayer life can continue to grow, where our prayer life can, can produce results in our lives, that can make us changed people. And I just want to ask that all of us here, that you would strengthen our resolve, that you would strengthen our commitment to you. You know we love you, Father, and you know our weaknesses more than anyone else could know. And we just ask that you would help us to have a prayer life with you that is, that is honest, that is intercessory that is empathic, and that, we, uh, that allows us to be changed people as a result of our prayers. And I, I pray for, for strength in that commitment for this week. I pray that this church family would, would, would be blessed by an increase of prayer in our lives. And I pray that this church would be blessed by more people praying powerfully here in this church. And we ask a blessing over the Sabbath on everyone that is here. We ask for an extra measure, an extra dose of your Holy Spirit in our lives today. And we ask for a blessing on the people who were not able to make it to service today. And all these things we pray in your son's name. Amen. <laughs>